It's the idea of, you know, 20 minutes is hard for me to do. I'll find a lot of resistance if I try and set a resolution of 20 minutes a day. But if I can make sure I do it for just one minute a day, it's much more likely to, to happen. It's much more likely to stick, to become a habit. And then once it's entrenched as a habit, then I can start lengthening it. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 269 with guest Keith MacArthur. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here. Finally, I think that I am coming out of this haze of sickness. I have had bronchitis and got some antibiotics, and I feel like I'm finally starting to feel better and that I'm not choking every time I start to laugh or talk really fast or anything like that. So that's a plus. Also, I know I'm not the only one who's been... Marie Kondoed, right? Who's been mildly obsessed with... Okay, so true confession, I never read her book and never super got into it. I'm not the type of person who holds on to things for a long time. I regularly go through my closet and get rid of things, not just mine, but I also, you know, as soon as my kids grow out of something, I know it and I get rid of it. It's just very rare that I hold on to things. I'm also not super sentimental. I know a lot of you, I think it was probably the most commented post on Instagram when I posted about my Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club books. I posted some pictures of them. That, my Cabbage Patch Kids and my Barbies were the only thing that I kept. And by Barbies, I mean like I kept two Barbies and a Ken, which I don't even know if they had clothes on, but that's all I kept from my childhood. (laughs) My mom had kept some things too, but not a whole lot. So it's unusual for me to hold on to a lot of stuff, therefore not really needing Marie Kondo's book. But we started watching her Netflix show, Have You Seen It?, where basically she goes into the homes of families and helps them organize. So it's not it's not like the show Hoarders on, what is that, Bravo, A&E, something like that. Not that kind, but these are people who just don't have enough space for all the things they have. And she helps them organize it and just, I don't know, live their best life. So we were watching it and I sort of got the bug a little bit and I'm like, I could, I could organize a little bit more. I know I'm not the only one. I feel like Goodwill is busting at the seams now with everybody donating all of their stuff. But it just got me thinking about particular items that I do hold on to as someone who, you know, doesn't identify with somebody who keeps a lot of stuff. However, I, over the weekend, got rid of a few items worth noting. So there was this one particular sweatshirt that I had had. Oh my gosh, you guys are going to laugh. So this was back in probably, let's see, I was probably in my mid twenties. So it was, I don't even know what year it was. <laughs> it was a long time ago, probably about 20 years ago. I bought this Abercrombie and Fitch zip up hooded sweatshirt that was a too big for me because they didn't have my size and B it was already worn. So it looked like 
the thing was like 50 years old, not even just a little bit worn, but the thing was worn out and it was meant to look like that. And it was really expensive for me at the time. It was probably like $60 for this beat up looking sweatshirt. And I wore that thing all the time. And I just kept it for all these years and I would wear it camping. Like maybe that was the only time that I would wear it. And I'm I'm looking in my closet and I'm like, I'm 43 years old. Why am I keeping this sweatshirt that I had in my twenties that, that I don't even like anymore, that I don't even want to wear. Now people, if I wore it, people would legitimately be like, is Andrea okay? <laughs> it's like, does somebody need to help her? No. So I had this in the back of my closet forever and ever. I also had this really beautiful black sweater that I bought at the Banana Republic, probably around the same time in my life that I just loved so much. And it's like one of those classic sweaters, but also it doesn't fit me anymore. And same thing with a couple of pairs of jeans that actually aren't that old, but they don't fit me anymore. I believe that when I bought them at the time, they were a little bit tight. And now I don't even know if I could get them up over my hips. And they were really expensive designer jeans. Have you ever done that where you've held onto something because it was so expensive and you're just like, I don't know, maybe someday I'm going to fit into it. I don't know what the rules are for these things. Like I am all for getting rid of stuff that you have outgrown that just doesn't fit you anymore. But for some reason, it was because those jeans were so dang expensive. I'm like, no, no, I'm not getting rid of these. And I've really gotten to the place or at least been really working towards words, getting to that place where I'm like, it's okay that I'm two sizes bigger than those jeans are. Remember when I told you all that story about my underwear and on my underwear, I was mad at my underwear because there was something wrong with them. Turns out they were just too small. <laughs> I had to buy bigger underwear. Okay. That was maybe like a year ago, 18 months ago, maybe. Now those underwear are starting to be like, yeah, we're, ha- we're having a hard time here. Um, a little help. So anyways, that's happening. So I have these jeans and I'm like, why am I holding onto these jeans? I've, I need to just get rid of them. And I was talking to my husband about it and I'm like, I, they just make me feel like shit when I look at them in my closet. And I'm like, oh yeah, those jeans that I spent so much money on and that don't fit me anymore. And he's like, are you trying to tell me they don't spark joy? <laughs> and I said, exactly. They don't spark joy anymore. But I was thinking about it and I have a friend here in town and really like, I didn't wear those jeans that many times. I could probably count on two hands how many times I actually did get to wear those two pairs of jeans. But I have a friend here in town who's pretty much my former size. And and I told her, and I'm like, I have these really great designer jeans that are in like perfect, near perfect condition. Do you want to look at them and see if you want them? And so she's like, yeah, I'll take a look at them. And I was telling my husband about that. And I'm like, yeah, Teresa might, might want them. And he was, and he's like, pauses for a second. And he's like, guys, don't do that. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) He's like, we don't look at our closet and see a pair of pants and think, oh yeah, those would look great on Dave. Like, you mean you don't think to yourself, I'd rather give them to him. And then that way, when I see them on him, I'd be like, oh, I'm so glad that those, those fit you. He's like, no, we don't do that. So that was funny. And just curious if anybody else out there is getting the bug to really go through their stuff and reorganize. I feel like it always feels great 
to get rid of stuff, to reorganize and just feel like you have some kind of control. I'm just a big fan of decluttering. I think that it can, I'm going to say it, I think it can change your life. I really do. I think that clutter can just add to the overwhelm that we have and it just can take up more space that you don't need and just energetically bring you down. So maybe that's your challenge for the week, y'all, is baby steps. I'm not asking you to go into your house and take everything out of your closet and put it on your bed and see what sparks joy. If you want to do that and have the time and space, by all means do it. But maybe it's just one cabinet. I don't know about you, but my Tupperware cabinet is the thing that becomes the bane of my existence. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's a junk drawer that you have that just need, you need to just get some crap out of there. Maybe it's your shoes. It's just one baby step that you can take to make yourself feel better, to feel less overwhelmed, just to energetically feel a little bit cleaner. All right. I also wanted to remind you that we are still accepting applications for the Mentorship Masterclass. This is my flagship program, y'all. I only keep this open to a select small group of women who are ready to change their lives. No, we don't declutter your closet. Although if you want that as a challenge, some people actually bring that to the calls and that's what they want to do to change their life. But we dive deep into shame resilience. I teach you better coping skills, better coping mechanism, courage, confidence, vulnerability, boundaries, and hard conversations. Because I cannot tell you that the answer to your problems is to be more vulnerable and then not teach you how to have boundary conversations and things like that. So that's also something that we learn and also super excited to invite the Mentorship Masterclass to my house this year for our workshop and retreat here in person in North Carolina. You can read all the information over at yourkickasslife.com slash mentorship. That link, of course, is in the show notes. And the applications come straight to me. And if it's a great fit, then you and I will hop on the phone to chat about it. See if it's something that you want to dive into this year. I would be honored to have you. I'm even just honored to read applications and hear about the things that are going on in your life and the challenges and struggles and the things that you want to accomplish for 2019 and beyond. So thank you for all of y'all who have filled out an application and just the really beautiful, amazing conversations that I've had along the way. Yourkickasslife.com slash mentorship. All right. Super pumped to share with you today's conversation with Keith MacArthur. Let me tell you a little bit about Keith before we jump in. Keith MacArthur got a second chance in life in 2017 when his little sister donated her kidney for transplant. Now he writes and podcasts about his journey to becoming happier and healthier. Keith is the creator of My Instruction Manual, a website, podcast, and book series providing high-quality personal development and content. So without further ado, y'all, here is Keith. Keith, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I am really looking forward to this conversation because the tables have turned. You've interviewed me twice. I have. And they've been such great conversations and I've enjoyed speaking to you so much. And I I knew that, especially this time of year, it was a good idea to have you on. And we're actually recording this. I know this podcast episode will come out in February, but you and I are recording. You're actually my first interview of the year. Congratulations. Thank you. Very fun. (laughs) But it's the new year and... And I released a podcast episode, my very first one for the year, and it was called New Year, New You. And then in parentheses, I think it was the title of it was You Don't Need No Stinking Morning Routine or something like that. Because 
I feel like, okay, so just so, so you know, my, I have an audience of, of high achievers and I feel like the new year can be overwhelming for some. Do you think so? I mean, is it just me? No, I think, I think that's true. We, we can definitely put a lot of expectations on ourselves. And, you know, one of the interesting things about New Year's is, I know you talk a lot about shame. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is, psychologically is that our mind kind of doesn't ever see, you know, although we're always one person, we kind of see ourselves as like a past, present, and future version of ourselves. And part of the reason why people put so much pressure around on themselves around New Year's is because they can kind of relegate all of their mistakes to last year yeah. and think about it as a fresh new start. And, and they kind of can put aside that shame. And it puts a lot of pressure on you, you know, especially if you already have this belief that you need to be perfect to be worthwhile, which I have. Um if you make mistakes in the new year, they feel bigger than a mistake that you might've made just a few days before. That's interesting. I had never thought about that. That reminds me of a podcast episode that I listened to and I cannot remember where I heard it. So sorry, everyone, the link will not be in the show notes, but they were talking about, it was probably this American life or somebody's Ted talk. I think it was somebody's Ted talk. Mm -hmm. They were talking about language and how there are cultures that don't have past tense language. And right. so it might be Asian cultures. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I think I remember English. hearing about this too, but I don't yeah. remember the details either. And that they look at things differently and they don't have, I'm pretty sure it was kind of what you were talking about, that they don't look at things like that. It's, it's very like present focused rather than past or future. So, but I love that perspective. That's interesting. I never, never actually thought about that, but okay. Okay. I'll give it to you guys that January feels like a fresh start. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, you, I know that you're a believer that people don't need to wait until the new year to start to change their life. So what do you think of the new year, new you mentality in general? Well, to be honest, I've always kind of been fascinated with this idea that you can go to bed on New Year's Eve and wake up as a new and improved version of yourself. So like so many people, I would set New Year's <laughs> resolutions year after year and not succeed in them, not be able to, to do what I'd planned to do. And so I sort of found myself making the same resolu resolutions year after year. Um, and then just la well, I guess it's two years ago now, 2017, um, I had a kind of big crisis in my life and I had kidney failure and oh learned that if I didn't get a transplant or dialysis, I was going to die. And fortunately for me, my little sister stepped forward and she donated a kidney to me. And I kind of felt like, you know, I had been given this chance for a new life and I needed to learn to live it better. And I kind of shifted everything that I was doing. I had been focused on publishing books in one area and this kind of new lease on life really made me fascinated with the idea of how to really become happier and healthier and achieve goals that I've been trying to do with my life for so long. And so I started, you know, reading everything about it and that's how I came across your podcast. And, um, and so that kind of led me to, um, you know, starting to write books and help other people share some of the things that I've learned. And so this, um, this book on, on resolutions was part of that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that about you. That's amazing. I've had a fascination with being a kidney donor side note. Um, and I was telling somebody about it and I, and I thought like, why not? I have two, you know, like right. yeah. just anonymously, not even to a family member, just somebody that needs it. And I, I don't remember who I was talking to and they thought it was crazy. And they're like, what if but you're a mom? Like, what if your other kidney fails? And I'm like, why would you, I, that's not something I'd never even thought of. Like just, I have two of them. Like, what? <laughs> 
I don't think I need to, but that's that's so interesting. So I don't um, know how it works in, in the U.S., but I'm in Canada and in Ontario, uh, because my sister donated the kidney, if she if something ever went wrong with her other kidney, she's right at the top of the list to oh, really? get a donation. Yeah. So that, that may be the same uh, in, in the I U.S. as well. I hope so. Yeah. But our healthcare system is so awesome. I mean, I couldn't understand why it wouldn't be the case. I just. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Side note on that. So I, in your book, it's called Everybody Needs to Go Out and Get It, Winning Resolutions, How to Achieve Your Biggest Goals and Wildest Dreams Once and For All. The link is in the show notes. But it includes science-based strategies, which I love a good science-based strategy, uh, for achieving your biggest, baddest goals. So can you share one or two of those strategies that listeners can maybe start using today? Yeah. So I think that the biggest mistake that people make when they're setting resolutions is, and, and this is especially the case when it comes to New Year's resolutions, is they treat it more like a wish than an actual commitment. So I think if you're setting a resolution, you have to really be serious about it and treat it like a promise to yourself. And, you know, I kind of use the term resolutions interchangeably with the with the idea of, of a really big goal. Um, so don't don't think of it as something that has to happen January 1st. This can mm-hmm. happen any time of year. Um, but in order to set the right resolution, uh, I, I have something that I call the six P's of resolution setting. And so the first one is precise, which is the idea that you need to be really clear about what success looks like. If you set a resolution just to get fit, how nope. do you know when you've got there, right? <laughs> yeah. So be really clear about what that means and and wherever possible include dates of when you're going to achieve it by. The second P is proximal, and that's kind of a scientific word, but it basically means uh, near term. So I don't like the idea of setting resolutions for a full year. I recommend that people set resolutions of no more than three months. So if if you've got a really big goal, break it down into more manageable steps because most people do better with shorter term goals than with longer term goals. The third one is practical, and that's the idea that it actually has to be achievable, right? Stretch goals don't work so well for resolutions. If you really believe that you can get it done, you're much more likely to get it done. Um, The next one is positive. So it's the idea that you you take a look at your resolution and make sure that you don't have words in there that are negative. So words like, um, let's let's say you want to give up um, soda. Mm -hmm. You want to give up sugary drinks. Instead of saying quit Coke, uh, reframe it to, to be something more along the lines of choose water. So just that that shift in the language reframes how your mind thinks about it. And then there's science that shows that when we set a, a goal with a negative, where we kind of are more likely to obsess over it, it becomes more difficult to achieve. That's interesting. I'm going to stop you on that one for a second because yeah. I heard about, so a few years ago, my husband and I decided, I think this was in about 2012, we decided to pay off of our debt after we finally like, and by we, I mean me, finally like actually looked at it and added it all up. And I was like, holy shit, it's 60 right. grand. And I started a spreadsheet. We sat down and figured out how we were going to do it and made a, made a plan. And I named the spreadsheet, I think it was something like debt debt or something like that. And then I was listening to some money podcast and they said something similar, like don't name it something like that, name it something more positive. And so I changed it to pay off exclamation mark. (laughs) And it actually felt better to look at that. And, you know, when I was searching for it in my Google docs, I would search for that instead of debt because it just, it's a small shift, but I, I understand that it can make a big difference. 
Yeah, yeah. And there have been the, you know, these famous studies where people, two groups of people um, were brought in and they were kind of primed to think about polar bears. And one group was told, you can think about whatever you want, including polar bears. And the other group was said, was told, you can think about anything you want, except polar bears. And that second group that was, you know, primed to not think about them, um, thought about polar bears much more often. So <laughs> it's, it's the same when it comes to, to setting our goals and resolutions. Yeah. Yeah. So the last two, one is peaceful. And that means that your resolutions have to align with your core values as well as with each other. So often people will set resolutions that are in conflict with each other. And sometimes that's because the resolutions require a bunch of time. So if you've got, you know, let's say you want to spend more time with your kids, um, but you also want to run a train for a marathon um, but the time that you have to train, you know, to do your long run is on the weekend. Maybe those goals aren't compatible right. and maybe there's something else you can figure out uh, to do it. Uh, so a better example of one where the goals are peaceful is if you have two resolutions, one where you want to you know, be more social and spend more time with other people and the other where you want to read more books, you could join a book club mm -hmm. where you meet in person to discuss it. And then the final one is promised, and, and I've already touched on this, but it's the idea that a resolution is a promise to yourself and you have to really commit to making sure that you're ready to make it happen. Yes. I, I love all of that. There was a couple of things that I thought of when you were talking about that. What was the first one again? What was the name of it? Precise. Okay. Maybe it was the second one that I was thinking uh, of. Proximal, the short-term goals? No, it was the, I think it was the precise one because okay. I, when I was thinking of, this was years ago, I think it was when we were about to move out to the country and I really thought about getting chickens. And I thought that would be really neat. And what I realized was that I like the idea of having chickens. Yeah. <laughs> In theory, I loved it. And I think it's so neat when I see people who have chickens, oh, and you get eggs and I can give them to my friends and I could, we could name them and Unfortunately, a number one, I have a bird dog who that would be just a disaster. I mean, it, it would become her right. life's mission to hunt them. And also, which is not peaceful, right. <laughs> your pee there. But yeah. also I think it was, it was a realization that that was a goal that I didn't really want. Like I just, so I think it's sometimes helpful for people and same thing, like maybe a little bit more realistic is, is being a marathoner. Like I, I like to run but I have really no desire to run a marathon. I like three miles. That's it. But it, it, you know, there's something about being a runner and people ask me uh, fairly often, like, Oh, have you ever run a marathon or are you get training for a marathon? I'm like, no, ew, never. Right. No, it's true. Yeah. I run as well. And, and that is a common question. Yeah. I did a half marathon yeah. once and I never want to do it again. It was miserable. Yeah. And, and it kind of puts the focus on um, not just on the doing, not just enjoying the run, but on actually accomplishing something. Right. And mm -hmm. it's, it's okay to just enjoy the exercise. If that's, if that's something you, that you enjoy. Exactly. I do, but not, not long distances. I'm like yeah. in and out. Well, and the other question I had was about, I think it was when you were talking about, um, the proximal one and stretch goals, mm -hmm. I have found that here, here's my personality when it comes to goals is that I, I have learned in my old age of 43 years that I, part of my personality is just competitive and I like fun competitive. So I, you know, my husband and I got off the 
workout wagon and and we both kind of wanted to get back on board and I wanted to do something competitive with him and I'm like let's just say we're going to work out you know x amount of times and whoever like I, I came up with this whole plan and I was so excited and, you okay. know, he had no he's like he's not competitive he's like I don't want to do that and I was so disappointed so right. I know that that works for me like friendly competition works really well for me However, when it's a stretch goal, I know I need accountability. So for instance, I'm in a mastermind right now and you know there was this pre-work and she asked us, what is a stretch goal for finances? And I typed it out and I said, and in the next breath I said, and I'm going to tell you all the ways this can't happen. <laughs> yeah, But I was being honest because that's the mindset. Accountability is so important for, for a lot of people. And I don't know if you're, are you familiar with, with Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies? I have some clients that, that love it, have told me about it, but I'm not, I'm not intimately familiar. So, so basically uh, the author Gretchen Rubin has these, uh, basically she says that there's four kinds of people when it comes to commitments and they have to do with whether you're good at setting commitments to yourselves and to others. And the, the biggest category is people that she calls, um, obligers. And those are people who are really good at keeping commitments to other people. So if you've, you know, you're good at getting your work done on time for your boss and you don't miss deadlines, but if you make a commitment to yourself to go regularly, regularly to the gym, that's a lot harder. You don't prioritize it the same way. And those people in particular, accountability can really help with them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for, for someone like you, you've got a big platform. You can go public with your accountability and talk about it on the podcast or, or, or Instagram if you choose to. Um, That's how I then, trained for my triathlon last year. Yeah. And then for, <laughs> for a lot of people, they don't want to go public, but having an accountability partner can work really well. And, and the science there shows that it actually doesn't matter who your accountability partner is. It doesn't have to be someone who's chasing after the same goal. Um, and even whether it's, you know, your, your spouse or a stranger doesn't seem to matter. What you need is someone who can both be understanding when you fail, but also really, um, challenge you at the same time. Mm -hmm. And and that if you, if you find, you know, the right friend or someone who can, who can do that for you, then you're in good shape to be held accountable. That's interesting. And, and, you know, I've been doing, I've been, oh gosh, I've been coaching for 10 plus years and, and been in business for eight and I signed up for this mastermind and I hired this specific person because of what you just talked about. I wanted someone, I didn't so much need someone who's going to help me with business strategy. I, when I was talking to her before I hired her and I, I gave her a suitcase full of money, it was a lot of money for the whole year. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know that you're going to hold my feet to the fire. And that's, I, I knew exactly what I needed and wanted in terms of, who's going to push me, who's going to lovingly push me and not let me forget who I am. And I think that that can be really important to get to know yourself and what you need. Do you need tough love or do you crumble under it? Do you need just someone who's like your cheerleader and who's like, you can do it? Or do you feel like that's just nauseating and platitudes and blech? But don't, don't you think that's super important to get clear on how, how you're motivated with accountability? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a, a job like yours where you're a solopreneur can be really challenging if you if you don't have that accountability. When I'm you're the not boss the, and nobody's yeah, <laughs> yeah. nobody's giving me deadlines but me. Yeah. Cause cause so often, you know, we can just feel um we, we know what we need to do and we can feel bad if we don't do it, but it, it's it can be a challenge also because you feel like there's so many different things that you want to prioritize, right? You've got, you've got little kids and should you be spending time with them or spending time with your work? And, and so if you have well, these business goals, you have someone that's Instagram, Keith is very important. <laughs> Absolutely. 
<laughs> that, that's part of your job. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. And I, I know there are some people who work for themselves and own their businesses who listen, but I think that it can become, even in a nine to five, you know, I, I meet a lot of women who want to get promoted and, and want to climb the ladder and, and they struggle with, you know, um, volunteering for extra projects or asking their boss, like, Hey, can you put me on, on that? I think, you know, I, I can, I can do really well and blah, 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 and all that stuff. So yes. Okay. So I know that sometimes people will set out to reach a goal and get off track a little bit and then abandon the goal completely. So what are some ways people can get back on track and continue with their one goal? Because a lot of people, they're just like throw their hands up and be like, forget it. I suck at this. Yeah, it's so true. And and I think a big part of making sure, well, so a big part is before you even start is to take time to plan out your resolution. And so as an example, what you want to do is think ahead and think of all the stumbling blocks that are going to appear in your life that mm. could throw you off course, right? So if you're trying to not eat dessert, as an example, um, but you know you've got your niece's birthday party coming up and you're going to be offered cake in two weeks, um, are you going to say no there or is it okay for you to make an exception there and have a piece of cake and know that it's not a failure. And if you're making that decision up front, then you're not going to kind of get trapped in that shame spiral that we can often feel um, if we make what we we feel is the wrong mistake in the moment. And, you know, for many of us, that can just get us off track and then we'll, we'll feel like a failure and we'll just go out and start eating whatever we want. And um, so you plan it out ahead. And, th- and as part of that, as part of planning out uh, your contingencies for for what you'll do in different situations. What you want to do is come up with a plan before you even start about what you'll do if you stumble, because so many of us will huh. stumble, and it's important. You know, progress is so much more important than perfection, right? Um, and so, if we know that a stumble is okay, and we decide that up front, um, and you know, say that it's okay if I make a mistake, I'm just here's what I'm going to do next. Um, then, then we're we're in much better shape. That's, I never really put words to that, but I call that like getting out in front of it. And that's, that's typically Mm -hmm. what, if someone's, um, you know, in traditional life coaching, that's a question that, that many coaches ask is, you know, what are the obstacles that you foresee might happen as you walk into this? Yeah. Some people call it if then planning. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, I love, I love a good plan. I, (laughs) (laughs) I was just talking to one of my clients yesterday and she was saying, She's like, so I I get obsessed with the plan way more so than the actual event. Like I'll walk away from the event, but the planning, like <laughs> I'm all over it. I think it happens to a lot of people. One of the th- and this might be a little bit of an extreme example, but I don't think so because I get I, you know there's a lot of listeners who have struggled with drinking in the past and and mm. or who are sober. One of the things I, t- I you know pr- kind of circling back to what you just said, one of the things that I did when I got sober is especially because my, my, my husband, my partner is, um, not, doesn't struggle with addiction. And so it's hard for him. It was in the beginning, it was hard for him to understand, like, why can't you just have one drink? And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) let me tell you, that's another story for another time. But I told him pretty early on in my sobriety, I said, if I ever tell you that I think I'm okay, I think I can just have one drink. I am lying. 
And that is a huge red flag. I also said the same thing to my doctor. I I told her, you know, I struggle with addiction. If I ever come in here and ask you for Percocet or Vicodin because I have an injury, I am lying. Yeah. <laughs> Sound the alarm. So I think I mean, what what is your take on that? Because I I have found it important in my life and I call that just telling on myself. Yeah, I think it's it's a really great strategy. Um, some people will call that pre-commitment. So it's the okay. idea that not only are you um, changing your environment to make it more difficult to do the thing you want to do, you're actually taking steps to um, to put roadblocks in your way of, of achieving that goal. So one of the people I talked to in the book uh, had a had a goal to quit smoking, and she'd been she started smoking when she was 13, um, and it was really tough for her. So the day that she decided to quit smoking, she gave her husband all her money and, and bank and credit cards. So there was just be no way that she Oy. could go out and buy a pack of cigarettes, right? So yeah, setting those, if you, if you know you're going to be tempted, um, setting those steps so that you make it impossible for yourself is a great, great strategy. It's interesting because, you know, I work in the world of shame and I teach shame resilience and I've heard so many shame stories and... I've become pretty intimate <laughs> with the emotion and, and hearing people's stories. And I'm not going to say, but, and, and I'm just kind of like thinking out loud here for a second. So bear mm-hmm. with me, y'all. I wonder if, and maybe it's more of a question, if it can be, if shame can be a bit of a motivator because, so for instance, a light example of when I told everybody that I was training for the triathlon, if I had quit I would have been, it would have been a mixture of embarrassment and shame of not following through. I would have felt kind of like a dick. So what is your, what is your take on that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would say, I think that you're more of an expert in, in shame than I am. Um, I mean, I, I, I know you, you trained with, um, or, or did some of the Brene Brown mm-hmm. training, right? And, well, yeah, and, and, and I'm not saying like, let's use it as a tool. Right. <laughs> I, I think more, I, maybe my question more specifically is, is what do you, how, what do you see in people? Like how can it be effective? Is it never effective? Like what, what is your, what do you see? I would maybe differentiate between a feeling of failure and a feeling of shame. Yeah. And that idea that, you know, a feeling of failure can be motivating as long as we don't feel that we are are failures. And when I think of shame, I think of it as, you know, taking a failure and internalizing it and actually becoming that failure. So I I would say probably that that's never going to be healthy. You are an expert on shame, Keith. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's how I would see it. But thank you. (laughs) Huge. You're welcome. Huge differentiator of, of feeling that you failed, which we all have and feeling like a failure. There's a huge difference and it's not just semantics. And yeah, I could, I could go on and on about that, but I just, I find it. And I think, well, maybe this brings me to my next question is what do you see the difference is with people who like, do you think some people are just born with a personality who get shit done? Like who, who make their goals happen as best as possible and people who continuously fall off the wagon? I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I do kind of buy into the, the Gretchen Rubin philosophy that, that there are people who are just really good at setting uh, or keeping commitments that they make to themselves and commitments they make to others and others and and other people who kind of struggle with that. Um, you know, so, um, like, I feel like I'm, I'm one of those people who 
is pretty good at keeping commitments to myself and it helps me to, to do the writing and working that I need to do from home, mm-hmm. um, where I'm also my own boss, but it comes with some challenges too. Like it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say that one is better than the other. It's more about knowing what you are and then identifying the steps to help you get there. Like, so for me, I become so focused on a goal that I've set for myself that it's really hard for me to recognize when the situation's changed and to kind of reassess and to, to pivot. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the thing that I need to work against when I think of my own tendency, but for others, if they're, you know, one of the tendencies is called a, a, a rebel and those people have a really hard time because they kind of, um, want to rebel against everything, whether it's a commitment that their boss sets for themselves or a commitment that they've made to themselves. And so they have to, to do kind of different kinds of strategies, according to, to Gretchen Rubin, where, um, let's say your doctor tells you, um, you need to lose weight to be healthy. And you, you kind of, your instinct is, oh, I'm not going to lose weight because they tell me to, maybe that person reframes it and says, oh, I think my doctor thinks I can't lose weight. And then they take it as more of a challenge to try mm. to do what their doctor wants. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I do think that some people, um, have it easier than others. And you have, you have to kind of know what works for you and figure out the strategies for yourself. That's interesting. That reminds me of when I talk about self-sabotage and that can be mm-hmm. complicated because everyone's personality is different. I mean, it can go back to your family of origin. It can go back to so many things. That's really interesting. Now I'm going to have to go read that book. You put another book on my list. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's, she's got two books re- related to that. And so the first one is better than before where she kind of introduces the concept and that's all about habits and how to set good habits. And then it, the, the idea was so popular that she expanded on it in, in the four tendencies. Okay. Well, and that, that's the thing that I hear probably the most from my community is the specific goal of, and it can be anything from really the two big ones are consistently working out and eating better. And from being from the fitness industry, I completely understand that lack of movement, lack of momentum brings on lack of motivation. So it's, it's that initial, like getting your ass off the ground that can be the most difficult and that people tend to have the most, the hardest time with. And so what I always start with is like, well, what, what has worked for you in the past? Like what actually motivates you? And then, and then go from there. So what do you find? I guess my question specifically is what do you, and maybe it's a little bit too general, but what do you think about the people who like consist, like the, maybe they're, they're the rebels like, that you were just talking about the people mm-hmm. who, for instance, they, they sign up for the gym, they pay for it, they get all the food. It's, it's all prepped in their refrigerator and then they go to work. They don't go to the gym. They end up like eating out and then they feel like shit about themselves. What do you think is, what, is, what I, I mean, either what do you think is going on with those people or how can they, how can they take the next step to try to what are some strategies, I guess, for them? Yeah. I, I mean, it could be that they're rebels. It could also be that they're the obligers where, you know, they have great plans when it comes to themselves, but they don't prioritize the goals that they've set for themselves. And so I think accountability there is is maybe the key strategy. And, yeah. and here, here's an example. My wife told me about someone that she works with where um, they're, they're a couple. They both decided they want to go to the gym more, but... Um, the woman is the one who's, who's most keen to go to the gym and her husband kind of like, if he has the 
the chance, you know, he, he knows in his mind he wants to go, but when it's the actual moment, he's not so keen to go. It's like so me and the chickens, she, like he likes okay, it in yeah, theory. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Except this is, I think maybe, you know, when you thought about it, you know, you don't want to do the chickens here. He knows he wants to do it. He just can't get around to <laughs> okay. it. So what, what they decided is that he, um, keeps the workout clothes for both of them. So there's kind of pressure put on him where if she, when she wants to work out, he has to come meet her because he's got her workout clothes. And then once he's there, oh. he's like, okay, I'm, I might as well go to the gym as well since, since I'm here and have our clothes. So yeah, it's figuring out, I think the accountability that works for you, um, and finding out just, just ways to, um, feel like you're not letting someone down. So if you have an appointment with a trainer, uh, rather than just a gym membership, then you may feel like I'm letting my trainer down if I don't show up. And so mm-hmm. they're more likely to go. Yes. That, and what, what I've suggested to people in the past is I look at their goals and they're like, you know, they've planned out to work out five days a week and do their meal planning six days a week. And I'm like, that is entirely t- like, I don't even want to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that comes, that comes back to it having to be practical, right? Like, practical. so stretch goals don't work if they're, if you're, you're sometimes just, uh, it's sometimes it's premeditated failure. I have, yes. I have a lot of all or nothing listeners who, yeah, the stretch goals is their middle name. Yeah. And all of y'all listening, <laughs> that's you maybe just once a week, just start there. And I, and trust me, like I used to be like, go big or go home. I am consistently telling my people in my programs and my clients, like pull it back a notch. Like what, what is really, really realistic for you? Like what is something that you can, that you can actually accomplish? But I, I want to circle back uh, one more thing and ask you about, cause you mentioned environment and in your book, you talk about taking charge of your environment in order to achieve your goals. So how much does environment, I mean, it's kind of obvious, like how much does environment play in goal setting and goal achieving? And what are some ways people can create an environment for goal success? I think it's huge. And, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they tend to rely too much on on their own willpower or self-control, where really the best way to maximize your your willpower or self-control is to not have to rely on it. So you want to structure- If it were structure- just that easy, like, can you imagine just What's willpower that? and self-control? Like, yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> and, and, and it's tough. But um, if you can structure your environment to make the temptation's more difficult, you're going to be much better off. So if you want to, um, you know, I keep coming back to the, the food examples because that, that is definitely, I, I agree common. with you that food and fitness are the two most common resolutions that people set. Um, and so if you relate, if you, if it's about food, um, don't bring home that ice cream or those chips. Like for me, if salty snacks, if, if I have a bag of them, I'll just keep eating them till I'm done. So I have to make sure that if I'm ever going to have a snack, I just take a handful of chips and then put the bag away or else I'll just keep eating the bag till it's done. Um, but if you don't want to eat them at all, just don't bring them into your house before you start, um, you know, purge your house, go through and look for all of the things that could be stumbling blocks and and get them out. Yeah. It's kind of like when you get sober, like don't have booze in your house or you'll drink it like I did. (laughs) Right. Yeah. My weakness is pirate booty. That's the only thing. Like, I'm not a big, I think I just dodge that bullet when it comes to food. And I've never been one that can eat, like, I can't eat an entire pint of ice cream. Like, I get, I get, I feel sick very quickly. And same with chips and stuff like that. But pirate booty, I don't know what it is. I don't know what kind of crack cocaine they put in that pirate booty bag. Okay. I don't, I don't know what it is. What's, what is I, it? Do they not have that in Canada? Maybe not. <gasps> Keith. <laughs> <laughs> you can never live here. It's like, 
what what can I relate it to, you guys? It's I, I it's sort of like do do you know what smart food popcorn is? Like the yeah. white cheddar. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that, except it's more like corn puffs. Okay. But it's the okay, white. Yeah, I don't cheddar. think we have it here. But okay, so that's your that's it's your weakness. Airy and light. Go right now and order some on Amazon Canada, and, <laughs> okay. and hopefully they have it. And no, it's just it's one of those things where I I put it in my office because my daughter will eat. She's just my little mixnacky queen. She'll eat it all. But that's just the one thing that I will eat the whole thing, and I do not apologize for it. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's not on my resolution. Right. I actually okay. have one. I have one more question for you. I'm mm. just really curious. Like, what are what are some goals that you're working on right now? So for the for the book, I did I set some uh, three three resolutions that I set as part of kind of the research for the book, so I could kind of test some of the different approaches that I was learning about. Um, and so one of them was weight loss related. One of them was around finishing the book by a certain date. And then the third one was around uh, just applying sunscreen every day. Um, you know, it's something that is good for everybody to do, Welcome but to because of the, because of the meds that I'm on related to my transplant, it's even more important oh, for me because mm-hmm. I'm kind of more likely to get uh, skin cancer because my immune system's lowered and, um, the meds also make me burn more easily. Anyway, so I had those three. Um, one of the ones that I set for 2019, uh, and I, you know, I like the idea of setting resolutions heading into the, the new year, but I also, um, talk in the book about how it's not you know essential. And I also talk about how Mondays are a great day to start resolutions. So what I actually did is started my resolutions the Monday after New Year's. Um, so I really made sure that I had time to, to plan and prepare for them. And um, one of them is around uh, meditation. And it's something that I know really helps me, but I have a hard time doing it consistently. And so my my resolution is just to meditate for at least one minute a day. And um, one minute is is one of the strategies I talk about in the book as well, because you know there's a lot of experts in mindfulness who say you have to meditate for at least 20 minutes a day for it to be useful. Um, but one of the things I talk about in the book is shrinking your, your resolutions. And so it's the idea of minimizing the resistance. And this is especially when it comes to setting a habit, something you want to do every single day. It's the idea of, you know, 20 minutes is hard for me to do. Um, I'll find a lot of resistance if I try and set a resolution of 20 minutes a day. But if I can make sure I do it for just one minute a day, um, it's much more likely to, to happen. It's much more likely to stick, to become a habit. And then once it's entrenched as a habit, then I can start lengthening it. But yeah, so that that's one of my 2019 goals is to meditate for at least one minute every day. I love that. I've never heard, I've never heard one minute. I mean, that's definitely something I can do. I have found... My, my, mine are pretty basic. I feel like it's the essential. If I don't put it in my calendar, it will not get done. Mm -hmm. And especially now that I've gotten a little bit older and have more responsibilities adulting and I'm very, very, me and my Google calendar are very, we're very close and I have to put it in or I will not. Like I remember when I was younger and didn't have kids and had all the time in the world to do whatever I wanted, I would work out after work and it was just, it was so much easier. And then as I got older, I felt like, okay, why can't I just do that anymore? It's like, well, cause I'm damn tired and it just wasn't working with my schedule. And so I've changed, I've had to change things, but yeah, if it is not blocked out on my calendar, I will find a reason to, and I kind of do, I do what you were talking about before with that couple. I lay out my workout clothes the night before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's another good example of structuring your environment to make it easier. Yeah. And I see it in the morning and it reminds me, I mean, I would have seen it on my calendar anyway, but it's just like, 
doing these, these small things too. And what I've also done is and this might seem like a small thing, but it, it probably goes with the environment thing. I got workout clothes that I really, really like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You want to want to put them on, right? Yeah. And it just, it, it just made it feel like it was more sacred. Like this is important to me. And you know, why am I, why am I focused only on the clothes that I wear outside of the gym? And yeah, that mattered to me. And I threw away all the clothes. And part of it was like, I threw away my workout clothes that I had for my first marriage. <laughs> it was symbolic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't need these anymore. Yeah. And they were kind of dated anyway. But yeah, I went to, I went and bought all new workout clothes. And, and I feel like it totally made a difference. Like just, yeah, environment. So this has yeah. been so enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. Thank you for having me. Where do you want people to go so they can find more about you? Yeah, so myinstructionmanual.com is where they can find uh, my my website. So there's information there on the book. Um, the podcast is also my instruction manual, so you can find that anywhere you listen to Andrea's podcast. Um, and uh, the book, Winning Resolutions, you can get it on any of the online retailers, so uh, Amazon or iBooks or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's available everywhere in, in paperback or ebook. Amazing! I yeah. will have all those show notes in the all the links in the show notes. And also I feel like, and you guys go listen to Keith's podcast. You're such a great interviewer. And I was, I know I was already telling you, like I did, oh my God, like 70 interviews last year and you were one of my favorites. You're just, you're so good oh, at what so you nice. do. Yeah. Go listen to Keith's podcast, my instruction manual. And the book is winning resolutions, how to achieve your biggest goals and wildest dreams once and for all. Thank you so much for being here, Keith and listeners. Thank you so, so, so much for joining me again. I know how valuable your time is and I do not take it for granted. I'm so incredibly grateful. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.